All right, guys, okay. recording in three, two, one. Today we have a very special guest, one of the most critical members of Dr. Allering's research team, Linda Huynh. Linda attended University of California, Irvine here in Orange County, California, where she received her Bachelor's of Sciences degree in Public Health Sciences. She then received her Master's of Science degree in Biomedical and Translational Sciences, also at the University of California, Irvine. During this time, Linda was the Clinical Research Coordinator for Dr. Allering's research team, preceding Erica Huang, who we talked with last week in the last week's episode. She is currently MD-PhD scholar at the University of Nebraska Medical Center, a highly prestigious program where she will receive her medical degree along with the PhD in patient-oriented research by the end of the program. Welcome to the Medits Podcast, Linda, and thanks for joining us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Of course. So before we get into all the specifics about what it's like being in med school and the PhD program, all of this really starts with what really just got you into research and what got you interested in research so such that you started to look for it and eventually found your way to Dr. Allering's lab? Yeah, I think that to answer that question, we kind of have to explore why I was interested in medicine to begin with. As so many of us know, in terms of just medical school applications in general, there is a checklist that research, for example, is a part of. Um, so from my background into why medicine, the main reason that I wanted to be a doctor um, stemmed from a kind of a stubborn child's attempt at translation. So <laughs> both of my parents are Vietnam War refugees. Um, and my sister, when she was born, had a congenital heart disease. Um, and so with that, um, medicine was a foreign world for my parents. And little stubborn uh, seven-year-old Linda um, wanted to be able to kind of breach that barrier for them. Um, and so I was really drawn to medicine from an early age. Um, and one of the things that struck me most about medicine at that early of an age was how much physicians needed longitudinal follow-up for something like my sister who had congenital heart surgery at the age of literally two days. Um, we, I mean, we still have the same cardiologist, you know, um, and that relationship and the rapport that we have with that cardiologist supersedes so many of I mean, just relationships with physicians in general, that's not something that you see every day. Um, and so in undergrad, when I knew that research was something that I needed to accomplish, um, that's what I was really looking for. I was looking for a lab who um, had just much, as much of a drive towards longitudinal outcomes and patient quality of life as that of my sister's cardiologist. Um, that's one of the reasons that I majored in public health sciences instead of biological sciences. Um, that's one of the reasons that I take such a, I mean, desire to mentor, et cetera, because I think that those long lasting relationships are key to medicine in general. Um, and so when Dr. Allering's lab came up and I mean, he looks exclusively as prostate cancer outcomes and he has follow-up through 20, 30 years on some of these patients, I knew that that was a match for me. Interesting. That's very, very interesting. And Starting from Dr. Allering's lab itself, were there any specific projects or anything that you worked on that you're specifically and especially proud of? Um, yes. <laughs> it's I know this is a really choose. hard question. Yeah. <laughs> There's definitely a lot of, lot of interesting, interesting stuff that we all worked on here. Yeah. So I would kind of separate my research career into kind of three different parts. I would separate it first into like that of my experience when I was an undergrad student, 
Mm -hmm. um, albeit that experience was only about two years. Um, most of that stuff centered on just a retrospective assessment of surgical outcomes in general. Um, so I worked on a, like my first thesis in the lab was looking at how a surgical technique unique to Dr. Allering changed um, patient uh, sexual function after surgery. Um, and so that sort of that sort of cross-sectional analysis stuck with me during the first two years in Dr. Allering's lab. Um, we worked on after that kind of unintended consequences of decreased PSA-based screening, um, kind of expanding that retrospective work to actually nine centers across the United States. Um, you should have seen the Excel sheet for that. We had over 19,000 patients. Um, and that was before Linda learned how to statistics. Um, <laughs> so everything was in Excel sheets um, and everything was T-tests and mean and standard deviation, very simple. Um, still got the job done, um, but I think that that's where my frustration and not being able to learn database management um, came from. And so that's what ultimately sparked my interest in the master's. Um, and then in the master's program, I sort of shifted from this kind of retrospective and cross-sectional analysis into like almost predictive modeling. Um, my thesis project was a validation of a questionnaire um, predicting outcomes two years after surgeries, but at an early time point of 90 days. Um, and so we not only developed and trained that questionnaire, but we were able to ultimately create a mathematical model projecting recovery out to two years. And then for patients who had a low probability of recovery, we were able to intervene early and actually save them from a lot of the quality of life um, detriments at that point. Um, and that's pretty much where my work has ballooned from then. Um, I've done a lot of validation work since then. Um, and then now my, uh, my PhD, wow, I almost, I said master's, um, <laughs> my PhD thesis is going to be exactly that. It's going to be kind of risk stratification and prognostic modeling um, of long-term outcomes based off of preoperative imaging. And this is just basically just the beginnings of how, you know, well, quote unquote, artificial intelligence takes on the medical field, the merger yeah. of the two most, you know, just in my opinion, really, really interesting fields. And it's going to be this merger that's going to produce the next, you know, generation of research and models and outcomes and hopefully make us understand all these diseases in a, in a level that we'd never imagined that a human eye can't see. But mm -hmm. you spoke about how medicine shaped the love for research and your pursuit of research, but how has research itself shaped your love for medicine? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I don't know if it's shaped my love for medicine necessarily. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't think I would phrase it that way. Um, I Research for me now has almost become a necessity. I can't imagine myself in medicine without doing research. Mm -hmm. um, mainly because, and like, I, I guess with all big things like this, it's, it's a frustration that drives me, right? The reason that I pursued an MD-PhD was not because necessarily of my love for research. It was the fact that I could sit in a class of 130 medical students and have half of them never have like experience with an Excel database before. Mm -hmm. um, three quarters of them will never write an abstract um, even more of them will never publish a paper. Um, and so that kind of frustration, um, and honestly, that it, it just, it makes me sad about medicine, right? Like we learn how to read papers. We learn how to create critically analyze. Um, 
these papers and shape patient practice, but how many med students and how many physicians, how many residents have the capability or the tool tool set, the skill set to be able to do that on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Um, and so not only could I just not imagine myself doing medicine without knowing how to do those things, I couldn't imagine myself doing medicine without being surrounded by people with that same drive. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I guess that's, that's a little bit of a non-answer to your question. No, I understand. Um, it's like, you're essentially saying like, for you, research is essentially infused with medicine and yes, there is no one without the other, you know, like medicine, sure. It, in itself, it does inherently, you know, you directly work with patients and help patients. But when you do the research, I mean, where do the doctors figure out the medicines to use? Where do the doctors figure out the new treatments to use? That doesn't just come out of nowhere. Somebody had to be there researching and doing the statistics, doing the trials, all of that. It all goes hand in hand together. Yeah, so we can now transition into how your path to medical school was like. I know that uh, from our conversations before, you had a very, very interesting path. And it's really unlike most that I've ever heard. Uh, Ninos, you want to take that away? Yeah, absolutely. I am definitely a very non-traditional applicant. Um, I was kind of forced to be a non-traditional applicant, but I wouldn't change it for literally anything. Um, I So I did undergrad um, in three years. And like every whatever 19 year old at the time, I was very goal oriented um, and intended and actually ended up applying to go straight out of undergrad. So I applied for medical school during my second year. Um, and for me, as a second year, I was 19 years old. <laughs> so I studied for the MCAT while I was taking courses, um, did all right, um, didn't do amazing. My MCAT was not a turning point in my application. It was good enough to get me an interview at UCLA. Um, for which I was waitlisted for, um, and then ultimately rejected off of the waitlist. Um, but from then, I think the next question for me after that rejection was, what do I do in the meantime? And so a lot of pre-meds kind of do things that would strengthen their application. Um, and luckily for me, research did that. Um, but I had the choice of um, either accepting a higher level position, working as a patient services representative in the emergency room, um, a job that I had already done for three years during undergrad, um, or being hired as a clinical research coordinator with Dr. Allring. Um, at that point, I think that the question became less about what would strengthen my application because I had a choice um, in between those two and became more about what would I want my second career to be if I had to be in this career for longer than the following year? Um, what would I enjoy doing for the next year um, if it would ended up being just the next year and it didn't, um, which I'm glad that I framed that question in that sense at that point, um, because ultimately I spent three years with Dr. Allering. Um, the following cycle, I reapplied and again was waitlisted and rejected off of that waitlist at UCLA, um, at which point I decided to do my master's, um, take a year off, retake my MCAT, got a much better score now that I had a little bit more time and a little bit more experience in the field, um, just in general. Um, and so, yeah, ultimately took um, four years off between undergrad and med school, um, had a second career by that point. Like I was a clinical trials manager, very well published, um, making decent money. My salary was great. Um, and the benefits of working, like I, there was never a day that I woke up and dreaded going to work. 
Um, I absolutely love the work that I was doing, the team that I was a part of. And truly, like to this day, if I didn't end up in medicine, I still, I would be exactly where I was. Um, and that gave me a hell of a lot of motivation um, during that time in terms of, I mean, studying for the MCAT while working a full-time job, doing my master's while working a full-time job. Um, those things would not have been possible if I didn't have the passion that I had for that second career. And then when you were applying to medical school, um, the, the second time, were you focused mostly on MD, PhD programs, or was it just in general trying to get into an MD program? Yeah, so that's a very interesting question, because I did not know that MD, PhD programs existed until a week and a half before I applied to MD, PhD programs. Um, I knew that master's programs were a thing, and those are very common. Um, in terms of like your AMCOS application, when you submit it, you could literally check a box and say, I'm interested in master's programs. Um, but in terms of MD, PhD, I didn't even know what that entailed. Um, like I had seen MD, PhD after different physician collaborators that we had um, on Dr. Allering's projects, but I never really considered getting a dual degree um, until I like actually learned what the dual degree was. Um, and like I said, by that point in my research career, I could not see myself being a physician without doing research. And also by that point, I had been a bit frustrated many times over by the lack of skill set that I had in terms of doing research. Like, again, that's why I pursued my master's. I was frustrated with not having the statistical know-how and the statistical background and training to do a lot of our projects. And so even though the master's gave me some of that tool set, um, it didn't give me necessarily everything that I needed to do the type of research that I wanted to do. And so I was two years out of my master's at that point and starting to feel that frustration again. And so what is the next level of training was kind of the next thought in my mind. Um, and so I literally just did a lot of Google searching, figured out what an MD-PhD program was. Um, and the other interesting thing is that MD-PhD programs are typically basic science research. Um, only. And so that was a really difficult hurdle for me because I didn't even know if there was an MD-PhD program out there that had a history of students doing clinical trials work um, in order to get that PhD. Um, and so from what I was able to pull and gather at that time, I think there's only five programs in the country that have graduated students with um, patient-oriented research projects. Um, and so here I am. Just out of curiosity, when you say basic science PhDs, is, it, is that, you mean like, for example, like you get your medical degree and then you get like a PhD in chemistry or a PhD, like in that sense? Correct. Uh, okay, yeah. perfect. Makes sense. Wet lab research. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of the actual like logistics of the program itself, what is expected of you as a student? Um, can you like give us an overview of a typical week that you might have? Um, as a med student or as a PhD student? Just kind of like both, like how do they work together? Or if you yeah. want to specific more, uh, focus specifically on one, that's cool too. Sure. So it's actually pretty segmented in terms of training. So your first two years, you walk and talk like every other medical student. Um, if you didn't want anybody to know that you're an MD-PhD during those first two years, it would be completely possible. Um, especially since during that time, a lot of your medical student classmates are I mean, doing research, maybe just not as rigorous of research as that of a PhD anyway for their residency applications. Um, and so, yeah, the first two years you go through it like every other medical student. 
Um, and then once you finish your second year, that's when you transition into PhD life. Um, again, you walk and talk exactly like a PhD student. Um, if you didn't want your colleagues who were in the PhD program to know that you were a medical student before, then again, that would function just as the same. Um, the last two years of um, med school after you finish your PhD is kind of where it starts getting a little bit more segmented um, because now you have kind of all of your training from your first two years of med school and then all of your training from your PhD. Um, you have a lot more opportunity to continue your PhD work um, during the last two years of med school. Um, you still do your clinical rotations, but then during fourth year, you have a lot of elective time. Um, and as an MD-PhD student, a lot of people use this time to either set up their own research labs um, or kind of become their own principal investigator because I mean, you're, you're a doctor at that point, right? Um, and so we spend a lot more of our time figuring out um, kind of residency pathways that we want to pursue, whether or not we want to continue our research during residency, if we want to pursue a physician scientist um, sort of training program, um, which is kind of the MD PhD version, but in residency. Um, so that's kind of the only time when the two degrees blend together is during your fourth year of med school and i.e. your last year of the MD-PhD program. Got it. What factors did you consider when deciding between the various different medical schools and the different programs associated with those medical schools? Yeah, um, so I, so I guess going off of the last question as well, when I applied to MD-PhD programs, I applied both to MD-only schools and then the five MD-PhD programs across the country that have had um, students graduate in outcomes-oriented research. And so I didn't make the call to go MD-PhD until I had been, one, accepted to a program and then also ex like could weigh risks and benefits of um, accepting an MD-PhD position versus an MD-only position. Um, so in terms of just like med school selection process itself, um, the main thing that I was looking for was kind of a student oriented environment. Um, when you all go out on interviews for medical schools in general, you'll kind of see what I mean by this. Um, there are certain schools where deans and administration are kind of these lofty figureheads that don't interact with students. Um, as much on a daily basis who aren't faculty, who aren't lecturing you, who have kind of other deans of like student engagement, student affairs, et cetera, um, to take care of you. But at the end of the day, you have very little interaction with the actual dean themselves. Um, and then another thing is also like student environment in general. Um, there are programs out there that are more score oriented, for example, um, where students are much more concerned about competitiveness um, and there is much less shared resources among the students. And so that was my number one thing for um, just picking a medical school in general. Um, in terms of, <laughs> I guess, the second biggest thing in terms of picking medical schools is your quality of life. And it's easy to take that for granted when you're in the application process and you've been accepted because I mean, you've been accepted med to medical school. You're like, at this point, I will go to any medical school. <laughs> um, but if you have a choice, I would really strongly consider how different factors of that med school are going to affect your mental health. Like I didn't believe people when they told me like, you're gonna move to the Midwest, you're gonna have winters for the first time as a Californian. Um, and you're not going to see the sun for three months. And so seasonal affective depression is going to be a thing. Um, and I was like, no, like, I don't get sad when it rains in California. I'm not going to get sad in Nebraska. Um, 
it's sunny and 70 degrees for the first time in five months in Nebraska. And my mood is so much better. (laughs) Um, And that has happened for both of these winters. Like it is a real thing. Um, That's kind of the funny one, but like, there's other things that you just don't think of when you're, you've been accepted. Um, For example, like whether or not the school is completely pass fail or if they have um, pass fail and high pass that changes the environment among the students drastically. Um, if your exams are on Fridays versus on Mondays, if your exams on Friday, then you have all day Friday, Saturday, and Sunday to do nothing or actually to do the human things that you can't do when you're studying for a med school exam. Um, <laughs> versus on Mondays, you're going to spend the entire weekend studying. Like, yes, you're going to say, oh, I'll take a four hour break, but a four hour break is very different than not having to look at medical content for almost three full days. Um, so little things like that, um, were kind of my next biggest consideration when choosing the program. Um, and then the last one I've already touched on, um, in terms of picking med school versus MD-PhD programs. Um, if I was going to accept a position at an MD-PhD program, it needed to have a history of graduating students like me, um, students who are interested in clinical trials research, students who actually could just be my mentors going through the process. Um, in terms of picking an MD-PhD program, I was accepted to two, but one of them just didn't, the student who had done clinical trials work during their PhD had already graduated. And so I would almost be reinventing the wheel and starting from ground zero. Mm. Um, and that is very, very difficult to do, um, especially in research. And so when I ultimately chose UNMC's MD-PhD program, it was because there are students there before me who could guide me through that path, troubleshoot. And I mean, give me kind of the ins and outs of the programs. Um, And ultimately, that's why I'm now able to do it in two years. How did you find or figure out, like, you got to connect with these students, you know, before you even got in? Because this is like very, very detailed stuff that you learned about each school prior to, you know, stepping a foot in there. And that's that's really awesome. But just like, how did you were you able to talk to students before going to UNMC? Does the school kind of give you an opportunity to connect with students prior to your decision or how does that work? Yeah. So the MD-PhD programs are a little bit different um, in terms of stressing student involvement and kind of student engagement amongst Mm -hmm. MD-PhDs. In the United States at any given time, there's, I think only, there's just about a thousand MD-PhDs. And if you think about how many med students there are, like, a thousand MD PhDs and across the entire nation is a very, very small yeah, amount. That's true. <laughs> um, and so in terms of networking and like having that community, MD PhD programs really, really stress and emphasize having those people. Mm-hmm. And I mean, like I said, that's one of the reasons that I applied to an MD PhD program is because I wanted to be amongst peers who thought the same way that I did. Mm-hmm. And so during MD PhD interviews, you have the opportunity to meet with students. Um, and not only that, but like we had like just student get togethers. Uh, we had game night, we had lunch. Um, we also had like a dinner networking sort of um, event after interviews were over. Um, and then at UNMC, we collate all of our students' information and send it out to all of our interviewees. Mm-hmm. And so they have what our research interest is, what our hobbies are, where we came from, and they are absolutely open to like being reached out to um Mm -hmm. the kind of midwest nice is definitely a thing at unmc like if i send out an email to an older student i will get a response back within an hour 
Um, and that goes for faculty members as well. Like when you're an MD, PhD, people know how important those interpersonal relationships are to you and your career. Um, and so they really try to foster that. Um, but even like beyond interviews, like you can find all of our profiles on the, um, on the MD, PhD websites at every mm-hmm. school. Um, you can find our thesis projects, what we submitted, that's all public information. And so it was really just a matter of like me sitting down looking at like titles, abstracts, grant applications of older students in the program that I knew about um, and saying, well, is this patient oriented or not? Like, is this student going to be a good mentor for me? Yeah. Now you touched, you did touch on like how your first, uh, like the overview of how medical school program is and the PhD program in conjunction with it. But how was this first two years of medical school personally for you in the sense of did it live up to what you expected as a pre-med? Was it way beyond what you expected? Was it kind of like, no, this is just right. You know, like the intensity of it, the life of a medical student, like how was it for you personally? Um, I will answer this question with a caveat that I did Zoom medical school. Um, <laughs> years of med school were uh, during COVID. That's a um, good point. <laughs> the first thought that immediately comes to mind is that I would take the MCAT over any one of my exams and Uh my exams were every two weeks (laughs) so no it did not live up to (laughs) anything that I could imagine as an undergrad um you are like the phrase that everybody says the the two phrases actually one phrase is you're drinking out of a fire hose there is so much information that is thrown at you that there is absolutely no way for you to absorb all of it and process all of it just absolutely no way um, that's why pass, no pass is a thing. Um, and it's hard to pass. Like you knowing 60% of the content for a test, 70% of the content for a test takes significant effort. And I don't know if that's like ever happened to y'all during undergrad where just like a 60% is insane. Um, so like uh, the main thing that I like think about when like it's they're never first order questions right in med school and in medicine in general they're not first order questions it's like an example of a question on a med school test is let's see so they'll give you a patient presentation um it's like four or five lines and it's classic for a disease and they'll say the question ultimately at the end of it is which of the following organisms has the same mechanism of effect as the organism of which this patient is affected with. So it's asking you two questions in one question. It's asking you three (laughs) questions, right? Because it's asking you, what is this patient's infection? Mm -hmm. How does this patient's infection work? Like what is the actual like biochemistry molecular pathway of this patient's organism? Okay, now compared to this list of eight, it's not four multiple choice anymore, by the way, eight different other like organisms and see which which mechanism of action of those organisms parallels that that sounds like a lot of fun (laughs) (laughs) and so for you to get that question right you had to have so much knowledge and so much information Mm -hmm. um and so getting a 60 70 percent is i mean it is a lot yeah um it's a lot of effort um there are days that i mean i've studied 14 16 hour days before Um, and that's, (laughs) yeah. And I mean, that's watching lectures at two, three times speed. Um, and then after lecture, like having lectures where you're just like, I have no idea what's going on. All of these words are new to me. I don't know where the radial nerve runs. 
Um, so first I need to learn that before I figure out the mechanism of how an injury in the arm works. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's all what, like 50 minutes of something that you have never thought about in your life. And then you have to learn it, um, and know it by the next day's lecture, Mm -hmm. you know, because all the content builds on itself. Um, and so the other thing that med students like to say is that you have to eat your pancakes. (laughs) If you don't eat your pancakes every day, then your stack of pancakes is going to get much bigger the day after that, the day after that, the day after that. Um, and so you have to like eating two pancakes is no big deal, but eating 14 at the end of two weeks is not a good idea. That's true. Yeah. On your average day, you did mention that you study sometimes upwards to 12 and 12 plus hours, but on your average day, how many hours do you usually spend studying? Like how does your regular day look like generally? Yeah. So one of the things that I didn't know as an undergrad is that in med school, you don't really have classes. It's not like you have microbiology from one to three, anatomy from three to five. Like that. that's not how med school schedules work. Generally, you're being taught by experts in the field. And so, for example, if you're in circulatory, you're going to have somebody come and talk to you about congenital heart disease. Somebody's going to talk to you about heart anatomy, and then somebody's going to talk to you about EKG rhythms. And those are all the topics that you need to cover within, for example, the first X amount of time in circulatory. Mm -hmm. And they're going to get faculty members who are experts on those things to come and teach you. But one, they can be all out of order. (laughs) Like you could learn about congenital heart disease before you learn out about anatomy, just because of how the faculty schedules work. Mm -hmm. Um, And you could have days where you are only in class from eight to 12. Um, And then you can have days where you're in class from eight until five. (laughs) Oh, wow. Um, And so it, it really ends up being you need to know yourself and how you study and how you function. Um, Mm -hmm. Because in any, for example, two week block, you're going to have, let's say, 60 lectures that you have to go over. Um, If you divided all of those evenly, regardless of like med school scheduling, you would have probably six to seven lectures a day. So six, let's say it's six lectures, six hour long lectures. All med students watch lectures at two times speed. I have never met a med student who does not do that. Um, and so you spend three hours in the morning working on those three lectures, um, like just watching them for the first time. And then you're going to spend at least double that amount of time learning the actual material. Yeah. And when you when I say learning the material, it's either you, you yourself on your lonesome studying those lectures or the school is going to have some sort of small group or discussion or a lab that's going to help you out. And so at the very minimum, three hours of lecture in the morning, and then you're going to review for four, five, six, seven hours in the evenings, because the next day is going to come around and you're going to need all of that knowledge to learn the next day's lectures. Mm-hmm. Um, so <laughs> that seems very, very intense. It really does. But with time that as you did more of this, and as you got, you know, start got, I guess, per se, quote unquote, got used to this, did you feel more confident towards the end of your second year? Or is it kind of the same all throughout? I would say that second year was easier only because I did first year. Mm. Um, You start to learn your habits and you start to learn your skills. It's not, it's medical knowledge builds. Yes. But there's so much information in the first two years of med school that you're never fully confident as a med student. Mm -hmm. Like we had um, like immunology as our second block in medical school. So that was whatever, September of last year. If you asked me about immunology during circulatory, I would have had no idea. Like there's almost no connection for me. Like there's 
no information from immunology that kind of helped me along in circulatory. Mm-hmm. Um, but what you did know is how you studied, how you did well, what your pitfalls were, what your weaknesses are. Um, it's really about knowing yourself and that in and of itself makes med school and studying a lot easier. And then, um, so you're transitioning from your MD portion of your process to the PhD portion now, right? Yes. So have you taken the, the first step exam? Yes. And that is not the case for every school in the country. Um, but at UNMC, you take step one before you transition. Yes. Okay. And then that's just a cumulative of kind of like your whole first two years of medical school. Correct. And then some. <laughs> <laughs> and just uh, like, how did you prepare for that exam? Um, so I, the reason that I'm hesitating right now is because I don't agree with how I prepared for step one. <laughs> um, so as you all may or may not know, step one was recently changed from a score exam dictating certain cutoffs for certain specialties to a pass-fail exam so that specialties could no longer do score-to-score comparison between applicants. Mm -hmm. Um, And so this is kind of, this is literally the first year that anybody has ever taken step for pass-fail. And so advisors and previous students' experiences and prep courses, for example, they don't, it's the strategy that we have learned to use from our predecessors doesn't necessarily translate. Um, I think a lot of it does, um, but a lot, like how I prepared for step one was for a scored exam, um, more so than I think just a pass-fail exam. Um, And that doesn't necessarily mean that I overstudied, which is kind of the interesting portion about it. Mm -hmm. Um, So how med schools typically do studying for step one is a dedicated period. They will give you anywhere from five to eight weeks to do step studying. Um, You don't have any classes at that time. There's no other commitments. Like you literally just have a two month gap in your schedule to do whatever you want to prepare for step. Um, In the past, a lot of students use that time as a review period and had already been studying for step through the first two years of their medical school. Um, and then at the same time, a lot of students also just studied for step during that, those two weeks or two, two months of dedicated. Um, I did not study in med school for dedicated, uh, for step, um, and did all of my studying during those two weeks or why do I keep saying two weeks? It felt like two weeks. It felt like not enough time. Thing, um, during those two months and the thing that I would tell at least at UNMC because I don't know how to I can't speak for other schools curriculum but at UNMC now having taken step and now having passed the first two years of medical school I think that it is very true that if you study for step through the first two years of med school you will pass all your med school exams but if you study for your med school exams it's not necessarily true that you'll pass step um, mm. that was something that I really wish that I knew earlier on in the process, um, because I, you would think that all the material on step <laughs> corresponds with all of the stuff that you're learning in the classroom, but 
at least at, again, at least at UNMC, they are very, very different. Some of the high yield concepts still uphold, but the way of thinking and the way step tests is very different than how UNMC tests. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah. Are you ready for this transition from MD to PhD? Um, Well, I'm doing it already. So I am, what, two weeks into it. Mm -hmm. Um, I started on the 1st of March. Um, And I would say that my transition has been a lot smoother than a lot of my colleagues' transitions, Mm -hmm. um, mostly because I've been doing, like, I was very lucky to find the PI that I currently work with the summer before I matriculated into medical school. Mm -hmm. And so even during that summer, like as a new student in his lab, we were already prolific. Like we, I published three manuscripts that summer with him. Um, And then throughout my first two years of medical school, whenever I had a free moment, I mean, I I love research clearly and I'm I'm an active (laughs) PhD student. Um, And so I continued to publish with him throughout the first two years of medical school, worked with him full-time last summer, Um, And so there's not any of this, like these stumbling kind of logistical issues that a lot of my colleagues seem to be facing Mm -hmm. things like, oh, like I didn't know my PI was this busy or like, oh, I I have skills that I can't, like I haven't learned yet. And learning these skills is completely different than learning like med school content. Like those things, I, I think I got out of the way during that first summer with this PI. And so, I mean, it's just the matter of, am I spending eight hours a week working with him like I did during med school or am I spending 40 hours a week? Um, What intensity wise, is it, is it a nice change of years, a nice change of like, I guess, way of thinking from med school to PhD or is it equally as intense, equally as similar thought processes (laughs) or yeah. It's so much better. (laughs) It is so much better. Um, I'll give you kind of my experience with it. And then also, like some of my classmates experience with it because not everybody's experience. Like, again, I think I'm a very unique case um, in a lot of these questions. Um, Intensity for me, like it's a 10th of med school. (laughs) Um, I personally work from home um, because there's no reason, like I'm not attached to a wet lab. I'm not Mm -hmm. doing French research. And so everything that I can do, I can do remotely or I can do from my laptop at home. Yeah, um, And so I am in control of my days. If I wanted to get up at 10 a.m., I can get up at 10 a.m. I didn't want to work that day, then I don't have to work that day. Um, for me, that's really refreshing. That is very reminiscent of my time with Dr. Allering. Um, as a clinical research coordinator, I set my own benchmarks. I set my own goals um, while making sure to check in with my PI about um, certain things. Um, and so that's very, very natural for me at that, this point. Um, and so it's, I mean, I have, I can have an obnoxious amount of free time if I wanted, um, but because I'm so used to it, I don't take it because I, I mean, I'm trying to turn around a grant, a 120 page grant in a month and one week of starting my PhD. So the grind is real, but it doesn't have to be, you know, like yeah. I, I don't have to apply to this grant right now. I could apply to it in December and just stretch it out if I really wanted to, Um but again, that's not the case for everybody. Um, so I have cla- most of my classmates, all of my classmates in my um, MD-PhD class, at least, they all do bench research. And so some of them report to their labs at 7 a.m. and don't come home until 5 or 6 p.m. Mm-hmm. Um, some of them have midnight experience, uh, experiments that need checking up on. 
um, at 1 or 2 a.m. and they'll have to drive to campus. Um, and then others will just do an 8 to 5, but then still, like, if they want to submit a grant, for example, they'd get home at 5 after they finish their experiments for the day and still have, like, grant writing that they have to do. Um, and so for that, like, I don't think the rigor is the same, like, in terms of, like, in intellectual stimulation as it is in med school where you're grinding and you're continuing to grind every day. Mm -hmm. um, but in terms of like busyness and like how much free time in your day, I think that that definitely can be the same for an MD versus a PhD student during those respective years. Mm -hmm. um, and then even for other students, um, what I said earlier about being very self-driven, self-motivated, asking for what you need, like those things are things that some PhD, like MD, PhD students have never had to do, right? Like if you think about it, like in terms of getting into MD, PhD, you could have one gone to med school straight. You could be a fresh out of undergrad um, med student who hadn't done research on like real, like independent research on your own um, until your PhD. And so the, the most difficult thing that like an MD PhD student struggles with during PhD years is you don't know what you don't know. Yeah. And so how do you navigate being self-motivated? How do you ask, like, do you ask your PI when you don't know something or is that an independent thing that you have to learn yourself? Mm -hmm. um, personally, like the MD PhD programs, like this transition period is very, very rocky for a lot of people because nothing is laid out because every PhD and every MD PhD student is different. Mm -hmm. And so there was no, like, nobody ever came and gave me a list of classes that I needed to complete. Nobody ever told me that I needed to do a comprehensive exam before my thesis. Like, those were all things that I had to go out and find myself. Um, there's, like, no official orientation of, like, hey, these are the, this is the skill set that you need if you want to graduate from patient-oriented research, because the skill set can be so different for, uh, between graduates at that point. So you don't know what you don't know, and that's kind of the biggest sticking point of kind of rigor in PhD years. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Just, and then as we approach like the conclusion of this episode, I just wanted to see, ask you for your advice, just for our listeners out there for a few topics. The first main one being research. I mean, given that you are, you were also a clinical research coordinator and now you are also part of a PhD program. And even before that, you were a, you know, a pre-med and undergraduate time trying to look for just initial research and, you know, found your way to Dr. Aldering's lab. Do you have any advice on students looking for research, what they could do to find research and, you know, like just overall advice and takeaways for them? Yeah, um, I would say to be really, really open. Um, being from California, I think I mentioned this earlier in the episode, um, Midwest nice is a really big thing here. Like if I emailed a faculty member here and like had never met them before, I would get an, a response within the day. Mm -hmm. But I distinctly remember being at UCI and being an undergrad, looking for undergrad research opportunities and being told to email 20 or 30 professors um, and then not getting a response from the majority of them. <laughs> yes. And so it's really important if you, if research is something that you really want to do, um, being open to, first of all, doing that, but then also being open to accepting opportunities that come your way that you might have not thought would necessarily fit into your interests and your stories and your passions. Um, like nobody goes into research or nobody goes into med school being like, oh yes, I want to do erectile dysfunction research in urology. <laughs> like that's not what like went through my like head when I was an undergrad and was 
pursuing research with Dr. Allering or like even for my master's degree. Right. Yeah. Um, but lo and behold, like that has shaped my entire career. And this is now something that I want to do long term. Um, and so, yeah, if an opportunity comes your way and it doesn't necessarily align with like the specialty that you want to go into or what you've done in the past, be a yes, man, just, just say yes. Um, now again, like take, just remember everything that I've kind of already said, um, in terms of like quality of life, students, uh, Mm. involvement and et cetera, like the red flag, I get, yeah, that's what I'm saying. The red flag is not the topic. It should never be the topic. It should never be the mentor. It should never be the actual content. Red flags for you saying no to an opportunity should be quality of life, student involvement, competitiveness, things like that. Yeah, absolutely. And also for the students right now applying current to medical school or, you know, waiting to transition to medical school in the fall, do you have any advice on what these students like what they could do to prepare for that first year, that fire hose, as you explained it, or is this something that you just have to get shot with and you just have to adapt once it happens? Don't prepare, please take a vacation. (laughs) Like I'm, I'm not joking. Like you think that that's a joke. And I thought that that was a joke until I went through it. Um, There is nothing that you can do to prepare for med school. And like saying that to a bunch of pre-meds and saying, saying that to a bunch of type A personalities, like that's going to fall on deaf ears. I already know it because it (laughs) fell on my deaf ears when I was in this situation, but genuinely like the level of rigor and the information and how you learn in med school, there's no way for you to learn that except for going through it. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I beg all of you who are in this, like the lucky situation of knowing that you're going to med school this fall to just don't do anything medicine because you're going to be doing medicine for the next however long of your life. You're going to be shot with this fire hose for two years of med school. Um, so enjoy the time that you have with your family and friends and do the things that you love in the meantime. Perfect. Did you awesome. take a nice vacation before you started? No, because I had COVID. <laughs> <laughs> oh no. That's I tried. <laughs> Perfect. All right, Linda. Um, just want to say thank you. You're obviously extremely, extremely busy. You took, you know, this time out of your day to come join us and, uh, do Nora at Prem Ninos, do you guys have any more takeaway questions or, you know, to, uh, that we could ask? No, I feel like she really like um, talked about every aspect of like the experience and like, I feel like she touched everything, honestly. Absolutely. Yeah. No, for sure. I just wanted to clarify one thing. So the MD PhD program, it could be anywhere from like four to however long it takes to complete your PhD, right? Or is it like a fixed time? It is however long it takes you to complete your PhD. Okay. Okay, for sure. Awesome. Again, thank you so much, Linda. Um, If you want, uh, do you want to tell people where they could find you, shout anything out, or just any other takeaways, just last bits of advice before we conclude the episode? Not specifically, but y'all know you can share my contact information um, if so necessary. Um, You all are, I mean, I would not be where I am without the mentors who helped me along the way. Um, And so that is always the first thing that I want to do for anybody seeking out this career path is to return that favor. So. Absolutely. Thank you so much. All right, Linda. All right, Metster. So what we want to do is, you know, continue with this sort of content, everybody and, and keep interviewing people like Linda and really established people in their positions. And hopefully we can all take away a good piece of advice and somewhat prepare us for what's to come. <laughs> hopefully, you know, again, thank you. Thank you so much, Linda. We really do appreciate your time. 
Metsters, we'll catch you again next week on Saturday for our next episode. Peace out, everybody.